WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. And the time is just about 10 o'clock. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. It's time now for Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is our final program this election year featuring topics in participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about political advertising and its effect on voters in elections. We'll be discussing political advertising, how it works, why it's worth the millions of dollars being spent on it, and whether this is good for democracy. My name is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum this morning. Let me introduce our guest today. Joining us by telephone is Richard R. Lau. Rick is a professor of political science at Rutgers University. His chief research interests include political cognition and political decision-making, the media effects in political campaigns, and the institutional means for improving democratic representation. His research has been supported by the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Health, and the Ford Foundation. His most recent book, How Voters Decide, Information Processing in Election Campaigns with David Redlosk, was published in 2006 and won the 2007 Alexander George Award by the International Society of Political Psychology. Welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you very much. Also joining us by phone today is Kathleen Hall-Jamison. Kathleen is the Elizabeth Ware Packard Professor of Communication at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. She is also the director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center. Dr. Jamison is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and of the American Academy of Political and Social Science, among others. She's the author or co-author of several books, um, all of interest to the League of Women Voters and uh, the democratic process. But the most recent one uh, includes the Obama victory, How Media, Money, and Messages Shaped the 2008 Election, co-authored with Kate Kensky and Bruce Hardy, released in, tw- in June of 2010. Welcome, Kathleen. Good to be with you. So we're in another election season. We're getting down to the wire here, and we are being flooded once again with a deluge of campaign advertising designed to influence our vote or our motivation to cast a ballot. Some of that advertising is inflammatory. Some of it is misleading. Some of it is downright wrong. Um, We ask ourselves, is this any way to run an election? Kathleen, let's put it to you first. How important is political advertising in campaigns? Does it help people learn about the candidates? How much do people rely on ads to decide who they're going to vote for? Does it really make a difference? It matters, but in the context of news and debates, because news and debates are going to be the venues in which you're going to determine whether the information you've received in ads is accurate or not. Um, it is. It plays a role in voting decisions. It's not necessarily the decisive role. It depends on what your communication menu is as you're making your decisions. Certainly, once partisan dispositions play a far more important role than advertising does. Largely for partisans, advertising reinforces what you're already likely to do. 
Why is it worth so much money? I mean, why do people are willing to, to spend billions on this? Political advertising focuses on some topics rather than others. It sets criteria for assessment of candidates, and candidates know that that, that affects enough voters um, in states that they are not willing to take the risk of not advertising lest the other side gain that small advantage and they lose it. So it's just one-upsmanship, sort of. It, it, it's a, a way of, of altering the communication terrain if it's done well in a way that can shape some voting decisions. It also can increase the level of knowledge of the opposing candidate's position since what's largely featured in advertising this year is attack on what the other person would do, has done. And contrary to much press commentary, most advertising is accurate most of the time. I run factcheck.org. We focus on the deception. But the typical ad, you know, if it has a deceptive statement in it, doesn't have five or six. It may have one, occasionally two. Um, but much of the information that's in advertising is accurate. Rick, what do you want to add? Uh, well, I uh, agree with pretty much everything that Kathleen has said. Um, it seems to me that we want, I, I, um, we're focused, we're all focused right now on the presidential election, and of course that's where most of the advertising is, although actually most, uh, um, most of the advertising is not happening in New Jersey. I will say that, that it's uh, concentrated in the battleground states. I don't know... Uh, Kathleen, if you're seeing any in Pennsylvania at all, if it's we still, are, we, we still are. Uh, it's still um, vaguely a battleground state, I suppose. I I I have seen, I think two. I think maybe one Romney ad and two Obama ads. Um, I, I, I'm remembering I saw ads, I think, during the Olympics, and so these must have been nationally, you know, targeted ads or something. We're, um, se we're seeing a lot of it. I mean, Maine's not a bad, battleground state, but we're seeing a lot of outside money come in into the other federal races. We've got a, a race for an open U.S. Senate seat, and we're also seeing some advertising in our second district congressional race. And to the extent that it's you know, negative rather than, you know, it's attacking the other guy rather than promoting the candidate it's intended to help. You know, we, we wonder, do, does that work? Is is that helping change people's minds about the candidates or is it only reinforcing people's political identity? I don't think there's any evidence, and I've done a lot of, you know, a lot of my research has looked at this question, that negative ads are any more effective and positive ads. There is some evidence, and I um, and I think that this is true that negative ads actually tend to be more factual than positive ads. The positive ads, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a good parent. I love my country. I love God. And, but you know, who's not going to say those sorts of things? And with negative ads, usually they're they include some, um, I guess, verifiable information that you know. Some that you know. 
I say that uh, my opponent has done this or his program is going to do that, and here's my source for saying that. And it'll be a news article or some study or something like that. So, you know, there's some, um, some evidence that, neg- that negative ads actually provide more information to voters. Do they persuade people who might have supported that candidate not to support them, Kathleen? Um, they, there is some effect of, of advertising, but largely not on people who have already made up their minds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, largely what, what people are trying to do right now is mobilize through the advertising. That is, get their partisans to turn out. And there's a real difference in the level of enthusiasm of the the two constituencies for their candidates this year, with the Republican constituency more enthused, which means the Democrats are using their advertising in part to persuade, but much more so to try to mobilize. And then there's an effort to take that small swath of the electorate that is leaning and hence could be, be changed or is undecided and try to affect vote. But there's something else that's very important in this mix. We are partnering with the League of Women Voters nationally to ask television stations to insist on the accuracy of the third-party ads they run. That is the outside group ads. They have a right to reject them, and they have a right to insist if they're going to air them on the accuracy of them. They're making a lot of money on those third-party ads, and we think they ought to spend a little more time scrutinizing them. If they decide to air them, and they do have to decide to air the candidates, as they have no choice about that for federal candidates, we also think they should spend some of that money doing fact-checking on air and online. And if people come to our website, flackcheck.org, it's the second of my sites, F-L-A-C-K-C-H-E-C-K.org. It's a sister site of factcheck.org. They can email their television stations in Maine and say, television stations, we'd like you to insist on the accuracy of those third-party ads before you air them, and we think you owe us good fact-checking in our local broadcast stations. So you help us create a context so that we're not misled by any information in those ads that might be deceptive. Kathleen, slow that down and rewind it a little bit. Explain to our listeners how come... The, I guess it's the First Amendment would insist that candidates can say anything they want, but third-party advertisers have to um, behave to a higher higher standard. The the we protect candidate speech at a very high level because no one is comfortable putting anyone between a candidate who is the person who actually will represent us and the voters. But those third-party groups aren't actually speaking to us as individuals. In many cases, we don't even know who's behind those groups. And as a result, there is a different test that stations can apply to that kind of speech. And we've had instances in which stations have rejected those ads. That is, they've said, look, that's just deceptive or inflammatory, and we're not going to air them. And the rules governing the station's vulnerability differ for bona fide federal candidate ads, which they have to accept, and third-party ads. A station can't be sued if a candidate ad is libelous or defamatory because the station had to take the ad. But the stations can be sued for libel or defamation if they've aired a libelous or defamatory third-party ad. And so the implications of this high protection for candidate speech but no real protection for third-party speech are built into our regulatory structure. And stations are reluctant to act on it because they're getting so much money from those third-party ads, they don't want to chase that money away. Also, they're afraid they're going to be accused of being partisan if they take down an ad that looks as if it benefits one side. And we as a fact-checking group, factcheck.org, are saying, 
Well, you can look at all the fact checks from all the fact checking groups. There's a lot of consensus out there on what is deception. Some of it is so black and white, so clear cut. We think you can make that judgment call and you just should say no. Clean up the ad or we won't air it. Mm-hmm. We had the situa- We had both of these situations right here in Maine in 2010. There was one candidate that tried to sue for liable for um, third. It, I think it was for third party ads and they were flat out wrong. And he could not win that case. Now, in this election season in the U.S. Senate race that I just referred to, we had some other um, ads being run by a a third party against our independent um, candidate for the U.S. Senate. And he claimed those ads were false. He asked the stations to take them down. The station claimed that they were not false and refused to take them down. Who gets to decide whether they're true or not? Well, ultimately, the station has to decide whether it wants to air the third-party ad or not. And here's the irony. The stations are vigilant about protecting us from deceptive product ads. You don't see really bizarre health weight you know, weight loss claims on stations as a result because there are penalties for them if they knowingly air something that they believe to be false. And so they, some stations are as vigilant about their third-party ads as they are about their product ads. Some are not. Uh, ultimately, the responsibility for the decision lies with the station. The vulnerability of the station is if a content is libelous or defamatory, the station can be sued and can be subject to a judgment that can be costly. Recently, WCCO, the CBS affiliate in Minneapolis, decided to take down an ad in which the, the implication of the ad was that the charged candidate had been engaged in, in a form of illegality. Well, that's potentially a libelous statement. As a result, the attorneys looked at it carefully for the station. They decided they were going to take that ad down. So stations know there's vulnerability there. It is difficult to win those cases. But nonetheless, if you win them, you can take a lot of money away from the stations. And so the closer you get to claims about illegality, the greater the likelihood that the station will decide not to take the risk of airing the ad. We'd like it to be more conservative than that and say in case of clear-cut deceptions, whether defamatory or not, they should just say no. What role can the public play in sort of reinforcing the desire to have stations behave to a higher standard? When you see a station fact-checking on air and online or a local newspaper, your station or newspaper is taking some of its resources to help the public become more informed. Come to our website, flackcheck.org, email that station. It takes less than a minute and say, thank you for doing this. That's what our community needs. We need to have an informed electorate, and you're helping do it. We think stations should be praised and thanked when they engage in good journalism. And if you don't see that in your station and you see that it's running third-party ads that may be misleading, they don't have to be blanketly deceptive, email them and say, we'd really like for you to do some fact-checking here if you've made the decision to air them, and we'd like you to be more careful when you decide you're going to put them on air. I want to throw in, I think that's a wonderful idea, and I hope that, you know, that, that people and listeners will do that, and that I'm hoping that we're, you know, Kathleen, that you're gathering up your evidence or your, your, you know, of when this happens and stuff, and we can hear about it after the election, and hopefully we will hear more, do, you know, hear more of this and do more of this in future elections. We're keeping track of which stations are ad-watching, and some markets are doing a really great job in Denver right now, which is ground zero for political advertising, um, you have all of the major stations regularly engaging in ad watching, and they keep them online. 
The problem with ad watching always has been you air the ad watch once, but the ad airs thousands of times, Mm -hmm. and the deceptions in the ad simply wash out the effects of the broadcast ad watch. But now that you can post things online, it means that that correction is there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right up to election day. So if a voter sees an ad, it looks suspect. They can go to those stations and check to see what they said. And not just one station, they can look at multiple stations, which lets them check them against each other. So Denver is doing a great job. We wish other markets were doing as well. That's a great idea. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is political advertising and its effect on voters and elections. Our guests this morning are Rick Lau, professor of political science at Rutgers University, and Kathleen Hall-Jameson, professor of communication and director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Our topic today, political advertising and its effect on voters and elections. Do negative ads work better than straight ads? Is that because they're more memorable, or why is that? I don't think there's any evidence that they do. They're, they are. They do tend to be more memorable than positive ads. And, um, and another advantage that negative ads have um, is that ne- uh, negative ads are repeated much more by the media. So, uh, all, you know, our, some of our historically best-known negative ads or most famous negative ads were rarely shown on television or, or, you know, rarely aired in markets and paid for by the candidates, but they were uh, shown on the nightly news or talked about on by the candidates and that the claims get repeated uh, in the media, and so that I, I think often that is one of the goals of um, putting ads out there is to have them picked up and their claims talked about. And sometimes the ads gain their effect through their media airing uh, because the particularly the cable channels just simply air them to point out that they are airing, and they don't engage in any fact checking. And if anything, when an ad is deceptive, the likelihood that the, the, the talk on cable will be about its effectiveness rather than its accuracy is very high. So sometimes the effect is produced at least in part by uncritical airing, full screen, and not contextualized in cable news. That certainly is what happened with the early Swiftboat Veterans for Truth ads, so-called, in 2004. That they just got replayed by the media so often that it multiplied the effect of mm-hmm. the original running. Hmm. Yeah, we showed in our National Antiburg Election Survey that the uh, public as a whole, over half the public, very quickly knew about the ads and was beginning to believe the ads' claims, even though the ads hadn't aired in very many markets at that point. It's pretty clear confirmation that the effect was produced by airing in news contexts rather than in paid airing in media markets. Is there an extent to which the repetition makes even the most outrageous claims more believable? Like, the more you hear it, the more you think, well, it must be true? There's there's a phenomenon called the mere exposure um, phenomenon, where a simple exposure creates some kind of a registry in the brain about the content of the ad. And over time, if you hear it a lot, you get a belief echo of it. It just tends to stick. But if there's effective reframing and meta-communication, that is communication about that communication in news, 
people can feel forewarned about the content and as a result less likely to accept it even in the presence of repeated re-airings. And we've been able to show that ad watching does work even in the face of large-scale deception. We just released a survey September 26th at the National Press Club uh, that showed that those who go to the fact-checking sites and separately those who go to journalism for its fact-checking function, even in the presence of controls for such things as the level of education, those people who fall into this category looking to fact-checking are more likely to get more questions accurate on a knowledge survey about claims in the campaign. And that's even with the control of partisanship, which means that going to the sites overrides some of our partisan predisposition to believe whatever we're told by the people whose candidacy we support. I heard you trying to jump in there, Rick. Go ahead. Well, I, well, I, uh, I was just going to add, I, um, I'm, I guess the further question would be, though, is to what, you know, if they if they go to the fact check and they they get this extra information does that still does that change their opinions of the ad does that change their opinions of the candidate and that's a separate set of questions and the answer to that could be different you know and the it uh, my view of, of why and how we elect is that we're performing two functions election process is attempting to increase the understanding that the voter has of the alternatives being offered and helping the voter to make a decision. It's possible that the fact-checking function is increasing the likelihood that people better understand the alternatives, more accurately understand them, but at the same time they don't change their point of view at all. That is, they do exactly what they were going to do before. That, for me, would be a salutary effect. The goal of fact-checking for me, and I run factcheck.org, is not changing anybody's mind. It's ensuring that when they vote, they're not voting based on misinformation, and that they can see the campaign forecasting the governance of either candidate, regardless of which they support. Is some of this advertising, especially the negative advertising, designed to make people feel so... um cynical about the political process that they disengage? I mean, is there like micro-targeting to make people want to stay home? I think I'm going to let you take that one. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I have heard claims to that effect, and of course no candidate would ever or, or, you know, say that, yes, that's what we were trying to do. Um, I'm thinking particularly of the third parties, though, maybe not so much of the candidates themselves. The third-party ads. Yeah. Um, conceivably, that is um, that is the case. I, I was talking about this in my class today, and one of my students was reporting an ad that he had seen that was, that, you know, what I guess was targeted at Democratic Hispanic voters, and the message was, you know, you're, aren't you disappointed in President Obama? Don't vote. And it seemed kind of a weird ad to me, and maybe I shouldn't be talking about stories that I haven't seen myself. It seems to me that um, that they're one of the areas that there's been a lot of research um, in our discipline is trying to look at whether the extent to which 
negative ads, so-called demobilize the electorate, lead people not to vote, um, or decrease system-supporting attitudes, so make people more cynical about government or feeling less, less efficacious in their own abilities to control what's going on and uh, in politics. And um, the evidence suggests that there's not a whole, that, that negative ads are as likely to increase turnout as they are to decrease turnout. I think that there's some, that negative ads are more likely to decrease turnout among independent voters and more likely to increase turnout among partisans. We were talking about that um, earlier. Uh, there is some evidence, and these effects are not very strong, that, that people do become more cynical um, about government when they're exposed to a lot of negative ads. One of the things we know from our study of news coverage is that when the news covers a, a substantive exchange or a debate through a tactical or strategic lens, so it focuses on who's advantaged and disadvantaged, what the polls are saying, that structure of news activates cynicism and depresses learning. Hmm. And to the extent that advertising is covered through that lens and debates covered through that lens, we may be producing that effect regardless of what the advertising itself is doing. We also have seen this year um, a phenomenon that, that repeats oh, yeah, evidence that we, we found in earlier elections um, in which radio is being targeted to communities to remind them of all the things they don't like about the candidate the community is naturally disposed to elect. And I suspect that's what your student was hearing. There is targeted radio to Hispanics and targeted radio to African Americans pointing out that the Obama administration is liberal on social issues and we, the community, are not. Aren't we disappointed in the fact that they're driving the country to this extreme social position? That kind of advertising is an attempt to, to undercut the vote. It's not likely that someone's going to hear that vote in either of those communities and go out as a result and vote for Mitt Romney. It's more likely that one person decides they're not going to vote at all. We don't have experimental evidence to that effect, but that's certainly a plausible hypothesis. Well, I mean, this all raises the question, you know, this total free speech, free-for-all, lots of money, lots of advertising, lots of communication, lots of messages, no limits. Um, is this any way to run a democracy? I mean, are we creating um, a cynical electorate, a dis in disinterested electorate, or are we really mobilizing people at the extremes? Or, I mean, how do other countries do it? Are we very unusual in the way we run this election process? Well, every country has their own um, their own rules for running the for running the election. What I think is most, and this is not something that I want to claim to be a huge expert in. Uh, comparative electoral uh, rules or something, but I certainly know different ways that different countries do it. What I think is most bizarre in our country is the Electoral College and the fact that the, at least, you know, for the presidential level, that um, 
you know, most of our votes of most people don't count. Well, that's a subject for a whole other show. I think Diane Ream did a whole show on that a couple of weeks ago. Kathleen, what do you think about how whether this is any way to run a democracy, or is this really helping um, participatory democracy, getting citizens engaged and working with their government? I worry about the role of money in politics and the appearance of corruption as a result, the possible of imbalance in speech so that one side has a voice that's more dominant than the other. Um, I worry as well about a, uh, a structure in which there's an incentive in the system because of the role of money for stations to take deceptive content and traffic it out to the electorate. I'd like to see us move to a system in which the candidates are given blocks of free time um, and, as a result, don't have to pay for access. Um, I think if we could find a way to dampen the effects of money, we would correct some of the problems I see with the way in which we elect. I think the, the second area of, of potential benefit, however, in our system, because I, I think there are many things that are right about our system, is our institutionalized debate structure at the presidential level. Um, we know that the debates manage to attract large audiences, uh, somewhere in the range of 70 million for this first debate. That's an astonishing number of people. We know that those who watch debates do learn from them, not every single individual, but in aggregate, the groups that watch, even those who have very little information, do learn from debates. And they give us a head-to-head comparison. To some extent, the fact that we've institutionalized that structure dampens down the effect of money, dampens down the effect of the advertising. And I think that's positive, and it's one of the things we should be proud of in our democratic system. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is political advertising and its effect on voters in elections. Our guests this morning are Rick Lau, professor of political science at Rutgers University, and Kathleen Hall-Jameson, professor of communication and director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Again, our topic today is political advertising and its effect on voters in elections. And we were just talking about what reforms if you could change anything about the way we run campaigns in terms of political advertising, what would it be? Let's um, ask you that, Rick. What reforms would you advocate? Um, Well, I guess in addition to um, doing away with the Electoral College and in practical terms, that's that's a hard thing to do. I I would second the idea that um, Kathleen... Uh, offered of having giving candidates um, free time. I am the way the in England the candidates are when when first of all campaigns are much shorter than they are in this uh, country. Typically, because of their system of government, where the government can call an early election. Uh, if they choose to do that, in which case, you know, then there's only two months or something until the uh, till the upcoming election. And in England, the different uh, parties, and so in England it is a party-based system more than a candidate-based system, but the different parties are given, I believe, 10-minute slots where they can tell their story on the... Uh, free of charge on uh, the news stations and on the, the public news station, which is 
the public television station, which is um, much bigger in England than it is in the U.S. And I think, again, that's a, that would be a very uh, good idea. Of course, what we're seeing more of, and you could say, well, this is how we do it in this country, is the Internet. And the Internet, uh, um, the candidates can you know, produce their ads and then put them up on their websites. Or you can go to YouTube and poke around and look for political ads if you want to see them. How, do, how does, while we're talking about TV, how does um, uh, cable news sort of f- and fit into the free broadcast time? Um, and, I mean, some of the cable news um, channels are very, very partisan, and some of the talk radio is very partisan. I mean, these are sort of campaign machines in, in their own, own right. How does that fit in with the political messaging and political advertising? One of the things that happens as a result of exposure to MSNBC is that you you are more likely to believe the claims that Obama is making, regardless of the fact, and less likely to believe the Romney claims. They become more accurate about Romney um, and in some important ways. Um, if you're listening to the Obama attacks on Romney uh, through that as a filter, I mean, each each side is fairly aggressive about protecting its own candidate. Uh, but it's pretty aggressive about vetting the claims on the other side. Uh, you also see that MSNBC and Fox are mirror images of each other in what they, they would tell you is happening with civility in the country. So if you watch Fox, you see virtually every instance of incivility on the left, and if you watch MSNBC, you see virtually every instance of incivility on the right. Uh, we issued a report on that earlier in the year. And so there is a positive function the, you know, to the extent that that they are being vigilant about policing the attacks on the other side. They're increasing accuracy of your perception of, of, of those. But they're not as vigilant about policing what their own candidate is saying. But what has happened is that the sort of the public has pre-sorted themselves. And so the liberals and the Democrats listen to MSNBC and hear the message they would like to hear. And as Kathleen says, and hear the message from the opponent being debunked, and the conservatives and the Republicans tune in to Fox News and, again, hear the messages they want to hear and hear the, you know, the attacks from the other side debunked. And so in terms of political advertising, I, uh, I don't watch either of these stations very much, but I don't think that you... You know that you're talking the most committed partisans are the audiences for these two uh, stations. So you know the Democrats would never advertise on Fox, and the Republicans would never advertise on MSNBC. And there's really little purchase for the you know the Democrats advertising on MSNBC or the Republicans advertising on Fox because the viewer, 99% of the viewers you know, are strong partisans that lean that way anyway. Well, actually, the, I, I, I agree with what Rick is saying, but not with the percent. About a quarter of those who are viewing MSNBC or Fox are listening counterattitudinally. So they actually favor the other side. Um, and those are really interesting people. Uh, the same, interestingly, is true of listening to Rush Limbaugh. Um, we wrote a book called uh, Echo Chamber, Rush Limbaugh and the Conservative Media Establishment, 
which looked at the patterns of belief of those who read the Wall Street Journal editorial page, listen to Rush Limbaugh and watch Fox. And we had some data at that point, this was through 2004, about what was happening with MSNBC viewers. The numbers weren't large enough for us to be able to generalize. Since then, we've been able to generalize. And we see factual enclaves. That is, people are hunkered down in their own little world of facts if they are the partisans who are watching those channels and getting reinforcement from the other conservative venues. If they're going online to read conservative blogs and if they're looking at conservative editorial pages, the same thing is true on the liberal side. And so the, the question becomes, how do they come to learn what the other side's positions actually are? And the answer is, to the extent that they do, they do it in debates. Hmm. When, when you talked about free TV, Kathleen, I, I um, sort of had in mind that this was... Um, an idea whose time had sort of come and gone because the broadcast channels, you know, the FCC um, controlled channels are such a smaller percent of the viewership than they used to be because of cable. If we were going to offer free TV time today with cable and everything, how would that really work? Well, first, in, in 1996, there was an experiment in free time. The um, uh, broadcast networks offered free time to candidates, small blocks of it. I think they, they were minute blocks uh, in which the candidates could say whatever they wanted. The presidential candidates could say whatever they wanted. Um, and so we were able to study what happens when you give the campaigns time. Now, it wasn't an alternative to advertising. They were still advertising all over the place. And what we saw was a reduction in the level of attack in that free time and an increase in the amount of accuracy. And so... We, we were heartened by that small experiment, but it hasn't been repeated because the networks concluded that it was boring time and that, that if they expanded it, they would have real trouble holding their audiences. The networks aren't averse to the idea of providing venues for candidates, however. They provide them on their Sunday news shows. And if someone wants to become quickly informed in the absence of debates, so when the debates aren't happening, the fastest way to do that, in my judgment, is sit down for a few Sundays and religiously watch all of the Sunday talk shows across all of the networks. The candidates' surrogates are, in effect, speaking for the candidates, and they tend to be held accountable on every one of those channels. Indeed, during the primaries, the vetting of the Republican candidates in interview form was very strong on Chris Wallace's Sunday news show on Fox. Um, and if somebody say, for example, a liberal Democrat, but wanted to understand where the Republicans were, the best thing one could do on Sunday, because Romney wasn't appearing on the other news shows, um, and the other Republicans were, let to some lesser extent, not there either, was watch Chris Wallace on Sunday. Hmm. Is there any... Let me, go ahead, Let Rick. me throw in um, one other point, though. You, you uh, and raised the idea that the that viewership of the free stations, of the broadcast stations, is declining, and it certainly has, but it's still larger than uh, viewership of, um, of the cable stations. And we were talking about, and I certainly raised this issue of the, you know, the MSNBC and Fox News and the more ideologically inclined uh, cable shows, yet they're... You know, the number of people who uh, watch them is, is much smaller than the number of people who watch the old-fashioned, you know, ABC and CBS and NBC, the, 
the news on the so-called mainstream news on the broadcast channels. And we tend to kind of overemphasize these more extreme um, cases. And, you know, they're interesting. But still, most people are getting most of their information from, um, you know, from the mainstream news sources. And my understanding is that this is uh, also true on the Internet, that, you know, the most, you know, we have, there are certainly these extreme Internet and ideological blogs and things that people can go to, but where people get most of their, you know, that far and away the most hits go to CBS you know, news and ABC and NBC and CNN, uh, their um, web sites. Uh, um. Is is that your understanding too, Kathleen? And is, yes, it is. The, is there, but the, the numbers are down for the individual national networks as you'd expect them to be, uh, because historically they they had mo- they monopolized the space. There weren't alternatives, but the numbers are still higher, relatively higher, uh, to the compared to the cable stations. Um, and the, but that's not true in all instances across all cases. There, there are times in which you see uh, the, the numbers watching the cable stations uh, rise dramatically. Uh, you saw it uh, during the Republican convention with Fox viewership, for example. And what that tells you is partisans are looking for the interpretation of that channel about the convention. Mm-hmm. Of the convention. Is, is there serious legislation that's been proposed lately at the federal level about free TV time? What's the state of the play there? Uh, there there's no effort, and, and it, there's not likely to be one, because one can't really mandate the stations provided within the existing regulatory structure. Um, and the, there's no sentiment with the deficit and debt crisis for increasing federal spending on anything. So those who support public financing of candidates or a federal offset to television time that is given at no cost are, are playing in a very difficult arena right now. There just isn't enough money to pay for everything else that we need to do right now. It's the likelihood of picking up a new federal obligation is, is beneath is zero. Oh, dear. We're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is political advertising and its effect on voters in elections. Our guests this morning are Rick Lau, professor of political science at Rutgers University, and Kathleen Hall-Jameson, professor of communication and director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Let's turn in the last 15 minutes of our show to talking to our listeners about what voters and citizens can do this election season to get the right information, the right facts, the most information, to um, talk about some alternatives for replacing what some people might call the snake oil marketing system of candidate advertising that we have um, that we have now. What advice or what reforms? I mean, we talked a little about this free TV time, more debates, um, watching the Sunday morning talk shows. Um, what what ideas can we put forward to to our listeners about how to get um, some good reforms going, either legislatively or otherwise? One of the most important things the league has done historically um, is provide good information to the electorate in the form of voter guides and and in the form of access to debates. 
and you know everyone should stop and say thank you to the local leagues that have made those kinds of sponsorship activities possible. Um, by increasing the amount of good information, we make it possible for those who want to find it to find it and to trust it. Um, I would also strongly urge people to come to flackcheck.org and email their television stations and ask them to insist on the accuracy of third-party ads and ask them to fact-check on air and online and to thank those stations that are doing it. There is something that people can do this year to encourage the television industry in particular and newspapers as well to increase the amount of contextualized, accurate information that voters have. What would you add, Rick? Um, these are not these are, these are not things that I um, worry about a whole lot or think a whole lot about. So I don't think I have a whole lot to add. I uh, I love what Kathleen is doing, and I think that um, that we should do uh, more of that. I guess uh, I mean I would definitely urge uh, voters to read and to read newspapers or to get on the internet and um, search out stories uh, about the candidates and about the issues. I think there's a, uh, a lot of evidence to suggest that, pe- that newspaper readers are more informed than people who view, uh, get their news from television. And the simple fact is that you can get a lot more information uh, over in uh, a news uh, article and the context uh, that um, that Kathleen was just talking about is conveyed uh, much better in um, in written material just because it it you know it tends to be longer or you can get more facts in yeah, and, and I think it's good journalism in print digests and contextualizes um, in ways that, are, that one can supplement by television broadcast news viewing. I mean, the, the format of television broadcast news, news means that except for the news hour and an occasional PBS form, the content is going to be digested into a shorter period of time. But reading and then watching gives one an ability to lock down in memory with the visuals of news, the contextualized content that one has read online. And I would urge people who are confused by all of the economic statistics that are out there uh, to take a look at factcheck.org. Mid-afternoon today, we are about to post up a chart that takes the major economic indicators and shows where they are right now and where they were at the point at which Barack Obama was inaugurated. It gives you a snapshot across the indicators. Sometimes news features one indicator rather than others. And as a result, one gets confused because by one indicator, things are going downhill. By another, things are improving. It's helpful, I think, to have a one-shot snapshot. And that's something that's best done in print, and we've done it today. You'll have it by mid-afternoon. I just cleared it on Mm -hmm. factcheck.org, which is the fact-checking website of the Annenberg Public Policy Center. Thank you for plugging factcheck.org. I will confess that I am myself a subscriber, and it's terrifically helpful in um, weeding the wheat from the chaff. So it's a good website and a good um, list to be on. Um, but as as I hear you talking, the image that comes to mind is the idea that we have some prospective voters who are probably actively seeking 
good information about the candidates and their positions and are really working to make themselves very well informed. And we probably have some voters who are maybe a little bit more passive and are are taking what comes um, their way without necessarily seeking out more than what they're getting. Does that system really work? I mean, do we wind up electing the people, electing people who present positions that the majority of people want, or do we really wind up electing people who had the most effective marketing campaign? I think that the system that that system works. That the the process that you describe, which is an accurate one is fine because that's how we do everything. I mean, the the simple fact of life is that you can't spend, you know, hours and days making decisions and certainly not about making decisions about politics that is secondary to most people's uh, lives and certainly compared to how much difference any single vote matters. And so I I don't have a problem with, you know, some people, and, and they're like Kathleen and myself and you too, Ann, that, you know, you end up in jobs that are where you pay attention to politics all the time. And, but most people are not like that. And um, I think the system works, the system of democracy works reasonably well in aggregating the preferences of the people who participate. And one of the things in the system that's always intrigued me is the extent to which those who are not informed about what is going on don't participate. And so they're, they're, if one is worried about people's views not being represented, we should worry about them because they're not participating. And as a result, they're not getting appeals from voters, uh, from candidates, rather, who are trying to persuade them. But there is a, a process underlying the, the electorate that in, in which some just simply check out. They don't care. They're uninterested. They disengage. They're not informed. They don't vote. Or their lives are so chaotic that they're just not able to get into the system in any productive way. We ought to worry when there's some systematic, um, when some portion of the electorate systematically falls into this category, however, because as a result, they are much less likely to be represented in governance. One of the problems with finding a voice in the system for the poor is the poor largely do not vote. And when you get into the bottom economic strata in the country, there isn't really a natural representative voice for the poor because in the electoral process, there's no incentive to try to reach them because largely they do not vote their proportion of the population. Mm-hmm. And so there should be a concern under this, but there's also a correction inside the process. Those who have not engaged and are not informed also tend not to vote. Mm-hmm. The, the example that comes up sometimes um, about what I'm talking about, re- repeated messages and the slick marketing campaigns has to do with a shift in people's um, attitudes toward global climate change, for example, where, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, everybody really thought it was a problem. People were believing that remedies were needed. 
repeated messages that it's not true, that there's just a scientific hoax, that there is no global global climate change, and even if there were, it's man-made. I mean, that viewpoint has really achieved a lot more prominence than it did a few years ago, and I, I hear people ascribe political messaging to that in that it has affected the way people vote. Is that not a misreading of what happened? Well, first, the, if you listened carefully to all of the campaign rhetoric this year from the presidential candidates, you'd be hard-pressed to hear the word climate change, the mm-hmm. phrase climate change, um, or the words global warming anywhere. Right. Um, the energy ads that we're hearing are from the fossil fuel industry. Uh, they're on ga- natural gas and on oil, or alternatively, they're about coal. Um, the attack ads have focused on the clean energy is and dramatically overstated the extent to which the green energy initiatives of the Obama administration have failed. And so we are not having an informed, clear debate on the need of a country to respond to climate change. And those who doubt that there is an impact in their lives of this phenomenon need only look at the rising insurance premiums that those who are in areas in which there are likely to be climate problems you know, are, are being asked to pay. And so the, you, know, you look at what the FEMA budget is going to be in future years, you know, what, what your insurance uh, coverage costs are going to be if you're on the coasts, and say, we are already starting to see the effects of the industries that insure us and the government agencies that insure us building in the costs of what they see as the probable results of some of these changing patterns. So this is an example that I think people sometimes use to talk about the distorting effect of primarily third-party advertising on the political process. And this is why people, I think, sometimes worry that our electorate in general is perhaps misinformed about some critical issues of the day. And um, so, I mean, how, how do you think that plays into election? As you say, it's not really an issue this year. If we even look back as far as the 2000 presidential election, it definitely was. I'm not, uh, I, so I'm not convinced that there is, uh, of the public opinion change that you're talking about, Anne, certainly there are, you know, there are voices in the news media and on the Internet and things that question global warming or the scientific support for global warming. I, I just have not, I, I, I just, I, I don't, I haven't seen any evidence of that that view is widely accepted, that very many people pick that up. Uh, Kathleen, do you, I mean, have you seen something like that? Uh, no, but I'm really not knowledgeable enough about the public opinion polling on that issue to comment intelligently. What I can say is the agenda that's being set by third-party advertising this year is largely in service of carbon-producing forms of energy, which in my judgment will exacerbate the problem. And since Waxman Markey died after passing the House, died in the Senate, uh, the prospect that we're going to have action on this in the next term, I think, has been forecast to be very, very low. 
There's so much more we could talk about this. We didn't even get into the issues of the money and how money plays into this, too much money, sources of money setting the agenda, as you said. But we're starting to run out of time this morning, so I want to give you each a few minutes to offer our listeners any parting thoughts. The topic is political advertising, its effect on voters and elections. Let's go to you first, Rick. All right. Well, one other thought that I will toss out there, and if I'm not mistaken, the Supreme Court is uh, has signaled that they're going to be reconsidering uh, uh, the recent decisions that have allowed all of the super PAC money uh, to go into politics. And um, I think that one change that we could definitely have is... Um, in this process is more openness as to where this money is uh, coming from. And I believe the uh, current laws say that, um, you know, the super PACs have to report where their money comes from, but their money can come from some other organization that has no responsibility of reporting the actual individuals or corporations who are... um, providing the money and I you know I think that we need that 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 sort of information is something that ought to be out there that plug for the disclose act thank you Rick the league supported uh, that act uh, absolutely what about you Kathleen final I think Justice Kennedy signaled in the Citizen United opinion that he would support disclosure Justice Scalia has also suggested that he supports it as well right now we have third-party groups that do have to disclose although not with the sense of immediacy that I would like but there's a loophole in the tax code that permits the groups that define themselves as social welfare groups telegraphed as C4s those groups don't have to disclose the non-disclosing groups, until very recently, were airing a higher level of deception than the disclosing third-party groups. It, it normalized in the last month. Our last report shows they're now equally likely to contain deception, and the level of deception that actually dropped as they switched their communication strategy. But I think the, the, the single biggest reform we have on the horizon that's likely to pass constitutional muster is some form of disclosure, if it can succeed in, in coming through the Congress. Thank you both so much for joining us on the show today. We are, at this point, running out of time. Our guests this morning were Rick Lau, professor of political science at Rutgers University, and Kathleen Hall-Jamison, professor of communication at the Annenberg School for Communication and director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters of Maine, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Joel Mann, our engineer this morning at WERU, who came in on his holiday to help us out. And thank you to our listeners. Election Day is November 6th. No matter what your issue or who your candidate, I hope you go to the polls and vote on November 6th. Thank you very much.